0: Let's go now to the reading of God's most holy word. We're going to read from Jeremiah chapter 51. It might be difficult for you to follow along in your print Bibles because I don't read all of it, but I skip portions for the sake of time. And and you know what I try to do when I read the Old Testament is I'm reading some portion from the Old Testament that does stand behind the sermon text. And right now we're in the book of Revelation. So I might make explicit reference to it in the sermon. I might not. But you need to just listen carefully uh, to how Jeremiah 51 stands behind revelation chapter 18 beginning in verse 1 thus says the lord behold i will stir up the spirit of a destroyer against babylon remember that judah had been taken into captivity into babylon but god would soon judge babylon against the inhabitants of Lebai, and i will send to babylon winnowers and they shall winnow her and they shall empty her land when they come against her from every side on the day of trouble For Israel and Judah have not been forsaken by their God, the Lord of hosts, but the land of the Chaldeans is full of guilt against the Holy One of Israel. Flee from the midst of Babylon, let everyone save his life. Be not cut off in her punishment, for this is the time of the Lord's vengeance. The repayment he is rendering her, Babylon, was a golden cup in the Lord's hand, making all the earth drunken. The nations drank of her wine, therefore the nations went mad. Suddenly Babylon has fallen and been broken. Wail for her, take balm for her pain, perhaps she may be healed. We would have healed Babylon, but she was not healed. Forsake her and let us go each to his own country, for her judgment has reached up to the to heaven and has been lifted even to the skies." The Lord has brought about our vindication. Come, let us declare in Zion the work of the Lord our God. I will repay Babylon, says the Lord, and all the inhabitants of Chaldea before your eyes for all the evil they have done in Zion, declares the Lord. Behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain, declares the Lord, which destroys the whole earth. I will stretch out my hand against you and roll you down from the crags and make you a burnt mountain. No stone shall be taken from you for a corner and no stone for a foundation, but you shall be a perpetual waste, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, The daughter of Babylon is like a threshing floor at the time when it is trodden. Yet a little while and the time of her harvest will come. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has devoured me. He has crushed me. He has made me an empty vessel. He has swallowed me like a monster. He has filled his stomach with my delicacies. He has rinsed me out, the violence done to me and to my kinsmen. Be upon Babylon, says Jeremiah. Let the inhabitants of Zion say, My blood be upon the inhabitants of Chaldea. Let Jerusalem say, Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will plead your case and take vengeance for you. I will dry up her sea and make her fountain dry, and Babylon shall become a heap of ruins, the haunt of jackals, a horror and a hissing without inhabitant. The sea has come up on Babylon. She is covered with its tumultuous waves. Her cities have become a horror, a land of drought and a desert, a land in which no one dwells and through which no son of man passes. Go out of the midst of her, my people. Let everyone save his life from the fierce anger of the Lord. Jeremiah wrote in a book all the disaster that should come upon Babylon, all these words that are written concerning Babylon. And Jeremiah said to Soraya, When you come to Babylon, see that you read all these words and say, O Lord, you have said concerning this place that you will cut it off so that nothing shall dwell in it, neither man nor beast, and it shall be made desolate forever. And when you finish reading this book, tie a stone to it and cast it into the midst of the Euphrates and say, thus shall Babylon sink to rise no more because of the disaster that I am bringing upon her and they shall become exhausted. Thus far are the words of Jeremiah and thus far are the words of the Lord our God. It would be difficult for me to draw out all of the connections between Jeremiah 51 and Revelation 18, but I trust that you'll be able to hear them. In Revelation chapter 18, we read this. After this, I, John, saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and will wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand afar off in fear of her torment and say, alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold and silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, Horses and chariots and even slaves, that is, human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has come from you. And all of your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels, and with pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste, and all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors, and all whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning What city was like the great city, they said. And they threw dust on their heads, and they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets. For God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone, like a great millstone, and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more, and the sound of harpists and musicians of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more, and a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more, and the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more, and the light of a lamp will shine in you In you no more, and the voice of a bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants, where the great ones of the earth and all nations were deceived by your sorcery, and in her was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints, and of all who have been slain on earth. So far, the reading of God's most holy word. Uh, Brothers and sisters, it is important that we see that Revelation chapter 18 is a continuation of the description of the judgment of the harlot that began in Revelation chapter 17. In Revelation 17, 1, we read John's words, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. After that, remember that John was shown a vision of the harlot. Uh, she was seen sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and she was adorned uh, with gold and jewels and pearls holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. So you remember all of that from Revelation chapter 17. And remember that when we consider the way that the harlot and the beast upon which she rides is described, it becomes clear that For the original recipients of the book of Revelation who were alive in Asia Minor in the first century AD, she, that is the harlot or the prostitute, symbolized the seductiveness of Roman culture, the culture in which uh, they lived. Its sinful pleasures did have the power to seduce men and women uh, to abandon Christ and to commit spiritual adultery, which is idolatry. And so for the members of those seven churches to whom the book of Revelation was originally addressed, the harlot was for them Rome. That is what they would have immediately thought of. They would have noticed that this this woman and all of her seductiveness and the way in which she is described and the symbolism that is found within Revelation chapter 17 points to Rome. And the message therefore for those Christians was do not be seduced by Rome, and all of the pleasures, the worldly and sinful pleasures that she holds out to you. But when we consider the harlot's name, it becomes clear that she symbolizes not only Rome, but all of the cultures of the world that seduce in the way that Rome did. For on her forehead was written a name of mystery. So we are clued in here to the fact that this is not speaking just of one particular city or one particular culture, But to all cultures that do function in this way, on her forehead was written a name of mystery. And what was the name of this prostitute or harlot except Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And so by this time, the ancient city of Babylon had come to symbolize the seductiveness of the world. It was ancient Babylon that conquered Judah. It was there to Babylon that the people of God were exiled long before the days when the book of Revelation was written. It was ancient Babylon that conquered Judah. They were exiled there. And it was there in Babylon that the Israelites were to remain pure. They were constantly tempted to abandon the worship of the one true God and to just assimilate to that culture in which they then found themselves living. It was from Babylon that God would rescue his people as the great city would be judged. And that is what we heard a description of there in Jeremiah chapter 51. And so ancient Babylon, Judah's captivity there followed by their redemption and the judgment that place come—that place had come upon them, had come to have a symbolic significance then. Babylon is code. For all that is evil and seductive in the world, which does tempt men and women to commit idolatry. So by the end of chapter 17, we are told that this harlot symbolizes the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Uh, For the members of the seven churches to whom revelation was addressed, the harlot stood for Rome. Uh, For the people of Judah who were long ago carried away into captivity in the 6th century B.C., the harlot was for them Babylon and that culture that did seduce. For you and me who are alive today, the harlot symbolizes the seductiveness of our own culture. And I hope that you are able to look out upon our culture and to see the harlot there, that indeed our culture does seduce us in very many ways. There are many things that appeal to the flesh and to our fallen nature. And we must beware of the harlot even uh, today. So just as the beast from the sea. And the false prophet of Revelation 13. Have always been active in the world. Uh, so it is with the harlot. Uh, the dragon of Revelation 12. Has always used these three. Political powers that persecute. Also false teaching. And the seductiveness of the world. To draw men and women, away from the worship of the Creator into an idolatrous worship of the creation instead. That is the message that is coming forth loud and clear in the book of Revelation, really ever since Revelation chapter 12. There is a war that is going on, and, and there is temptation that does constantly come against God's people in this world. So by the end of chapter 17, I think we have a very good idea of what the prostitute represents. She Represents the seductiveness of the world. She represents the way in which the world, particularly the great cultures and great cities of the world, seduce and drive men and women to chase after her pleasures. And to make them ultimate, the pleasures of, of money, the pleasures of power the pleasures of fame and of sexual immorality, to name just a few. Indeed, the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality with her, and it is from her cup that the dwellers on earth have become drunk. That is Revelation 17 too. Notice also by the end of Revelation 17, we have a description of the harlot along with the description of the beast upon which she rides. That is all we have there by the end of the chapter. Only that a description of the harlot and a description of the beast on which she rides. She is described as being very beautiful and the power of her allure is recognized even by John. But as of yet, by the end of Revelation 17, we've heard nothing of her judgment as was promised to us in Revelation 17.1 when the angel said to John, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. It's almost as if the angel wants to make it known to John before he even shows this prostitute to him that she is already judged. And so mention of her judgment comes in verse 1 of Revelation 17. Then she is described, but what we have here in chapter 18 is actually a description of the judgment of this prostitute whose name is Babylon. And so what is the point of all of this that we are considering here in the book of Revelation in chapters 17 and 18? Uh, Why was this vision given to John and through him to us? Uh, What exactly does God desire for us to take away from all of this? I, I think that his desire is that we would come to see the sinful seduction of the world for what it is. We have come to faith in Christ. We have been called out of what then? We have been called out of the world to walk faithfully with Christ. Now, as Christians, we do have to relearn the proper perspective that we are to have about the world out of which we have been called. I think for those who are called out of the world to walk with Christ from a young age, the the relearning might not be such a difficult experience for them, but especially for those who have walked in the world for some time, And then have been called out of it to walk faithfully with Christ. We have to readjust our thinking. How are we to perceive then this world in which uh, we live? How are we to perceive it? And I think what we are being urged to do here is to see that this world, though so Beautiful in many respects, and though very seductive, this world is empty. This world and the things of this world, the sinful things of this world, only lead to death. They are things that are destined for judgment, and so sure is the judgment of this world that Revelation chapter 18 describes the world as judged already. Uh, We are to see the world, the harlot or Babylon, for what she is, and then. The thing that we are urged to do here is to flee from her and to God through faith in Christ Jesus and to the heavenly and eternal city of Jerusalem. And so Revelation 18 describes the judgment of Babylon or the harlot to us. But I want you to notice that the the judgment of Babylon is described to us in such a way that we also receive a kind of heavenly commentary on Babylon's true nature. Everyone, it seems, has an opinion concerning the happenings of this world. You notice that. Uh, there are so many voices that do uh, c- cry out to us in the world, uh, making comment on the, th- the world and the happenings of this world. Everyone has an opinion. They're not hard to find. You turn on the television, you turn on talk radio, you open the paper and you find opinions. But, but friends, it is God's commentary that matters ultimately. It is His commentary that matters the most. It is His perspective on the world that we should be most eager to hear. And so that is my hope, that as we consider Revelation chapter 18, that you listen up, that you see that God is giving His perspective from heaven of, of this world and the things of this world and His people certainly ought to take notice so that we might learn to walk properly in, in this place. Notice five things. First of all, recognize that when God comments on Babylon, He speaks of her as being already fallen. This is we see in verses one through three, indeed. It is peppered throughout the text. After this John saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, And what does he declare to John, living two thousand years ago? Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. We are to picture a a city, once great and prosperous, laid waste, made into a desolation. Now, of course, Babylon was not fallen in John's day. And indeed, she is not actually fallen today Uh, This world and the great cultures of this world are still uh, very seductive. But this angel from heaven says that Babylon the Great is fallen, fallen. He repeats it twice. It is as good as done, I think, is the message that is being delivered here. Though Christians, even to this present day, are still tempted by the harlot, whose name is Babylon, it is as good as done, she is fallen. This is her true nature. There is nothing there but a hollow shell, nothing there to be truly interested in. No hope should be placed in her, therefore. That is the message that is being communicated here in verses 1 through 2. It is as if God has inscribed above the city the phrase, Abandon hope, all ye who enter here. For Babylon's end is certain Destruction, that is the message that is being communicated to us. Why chase after her then? She can lead only to death, only to destruction. From the human perspective, it is admittedly very hard to understand how this could be. Wouldn't you admit that? When the Christians of the first century looked upon Rome and all of its power and all of its glory, I'm sure they were tempted to think, This empire will never ever be moved. It will go on and it will last forever. Who can possibly shake this great civilization? Who could possibly undo this culture? Who could possibly overthrow this kingdom? I'm sure they were tempted to think in that way that this thing is permanent. This thing is everlasting. This thing is all powerful. And men and women the world over are tempted to think that about the cultures in which they live. It is no wonder then that men and women are oftentimes tempted to bow down and worship these things. Because they seem from a human perspective to almost be divine. To offer things that only divine, something divine can offer. You know that the emperors of Rome eventually were worshipped by the citizens of Rome. Why? Because that culture seemed to be so immovable. It seemed as if it had so much to offer. And that is constantly the temptation that we have coming against us, to look at the, the culture in which we live and, and to think, certainly this will never come to an end. This is ultimate. And you know what? We ought, might as well place our hope here. And I think the book of Revelation is clearly warning against that. It, it's warning us against seeing things from merely a human perspective, but to see them instead from God's perspective, which, is he, which he is here revealing uh, to us. He is revealing to us that these great cultures of the world are as good as fallen. This is their end. Uh, human history shows us, and the Word of God does plainly declare that these powers are as good as fallen. These, in, these individual nations... Um, are as, as good as fallen. For in these last days, Jesus himself tells us, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. This is true of the whole course of human history, which is marked by this succession of nations. And then in due time, Jesus says, the end will come, Matthew chapter 24, verse 14. How foolish it is, therefore, to put one's ultimate hope in something that is destined to fail. That seems to be the point of it all here in Revelation chapter 17 and 18. It is a very stupid thing to place your trust in, to live for, and to worship that which is as good as dead. And yet that is what men and women do the world over. Secondly, notice that Babylon is described as a city that is fueled by an insatiable desire for pleasure. I so wish that all of you were here for the study before the service where we were uh, considering Pilgrim's Progress again uh, because we considered in particular what Bunyan has to say about the city that is called Vanity Fair and so there in his allegory he does I think make some of the same points that are made here in Revelation uh, chapter 18. It is, the, it is the observation that the world, Babylon, the harlot and those who live in the world and who are of the world are fueled By an insatiable desire for pleasure. And I am not talking about godly pleasure here. But I am talking about sinful pleasure. In verse 3... The reason for Babylon's fall is given, we are told, for all nations, for all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. It is the passion for sexual immorality, for wealth, for power, and for luxurious living that drives Babylon. It is a kind of engine that makes her run, it is what makes her tick. The news headlines have been very interesting the last couple of months, haven't they? Have you noticed that? Uh, how many politicians are we finding out and how many powerful and wealthy people are we finding out that in the dark places they are really just living for themselves? Were you surprised by it? I don't know. Were you surprised by the fact that they were so driven for, by, by, by the quest for pleasure, by the pursuit of, of wealth and power and sexual immorality? It's amazing how sometimes we are very naive. We think that people are more virtuous than they really are. But here is what the word of God does plainly reveal to us. That this Babylon, this seductive city, is driven by the pursuit of these things. Notice how those that belong to Babylon mourn when she is judged in this text. Verse 9, and the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her, what do they do? They will weep and they will wail. Over her when they see the smoke of her burning. This is what people do when their idols are destroyed. This is what people do when their God is destroyed. They weep and wail. They are undone because the thing that they lived for, the thing that held their life together, their very pursuit has been taken away from them. And so they are just broken down and they are undone completely. By the way, do you want to identify the idols of your own heart? Then ask yourself the simple question. Uh, What could I not live without? What could I not live without? What if it were taken away from me would undo me so that i be like one of these here described in Revelation 18, weeping and wailing over the loss of it. Verse 11, And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore, cargo of gold and silver and all sorts of things. You, you, you notice the luxurious things that are described here in this list uh, following verse 11. Uh, but it all ends actually even with the trade of horses and chariots and then slaves that is, even human souls. I think we do have, um, uh, we, we do have, um, recognition here of just how far human beings are willing to go in their pursuit of pleasure. They're willing even to trade human souls in their pursuit of pleasure. To, to enslave others, to make them serve only them. I mean, it is really a sobering thought, and human history, of course, does play this fact out. But what a wicked and terrible thing to do, to take the life of another, only to bring more pleasure to yourself. And that is what these were doing. They were trading in all kinds of, of luxurious goods, but even uh, slaves, that is, human souls. And so we are to recognize how far men will go to have pleasure in this world. They will stoop even to the level of trading in human souls. In verse 14, the idolatrous love affair that these men did have with the world is most plainly seen as the voice from heaven ridicules them, in verse 14, saying, The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. This voice from heaven is almost Mocking them. Notice what you've lost. You've lost everything that you once lived for. And so clearly these men were driven by an insatiable desire for pleasure. They loved to the core of their being this world and the things of this world. They worship the creation instead of the creator. And so do you see how throughout this passage they are again and again described as weeping and mourning and crying aloud. Verse 19, And they threw dust on their heads, and they wept and mourned, crying aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she has been laid waste. They are just completely undone by the loss of the things of this world. And so truly these men had their treasures stored up, not in heaven, but in Babylon. This is where their hearts were. They, being children of Babylon, lived with an insatiable desire for the pleasures that this world offers. Thirdly and, and briefly, notice that Babylon is described as a city filled with pride it 's a very arrogant place where men do say to themselves, "I will never be moved. No one can ever undo what we are building here. Verse seven, she glorified herself, that is Babylon the harlot did, and lived in luxury, and so gave her a like measure of so give her a like measure of, of torment and mourning that is the prayer that is the declaration here. Give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. This is not mourning as in the break of day, but mourning as in sorrow. In other words, I, I will never be made sad. Look at how prosperous we are, look at what we have built, and it will never be undone. You notice that that Babylon did not just exist in the first century, that is, in Rome And it does not just exist today, but we can go all the way back to the time of the fall and see that Babylon has always been present in the world. I think even of the Tower of Babel, very early on in the pages of Holy Scripture, do you remember what men were doing? They were gathering together and they were building for themselves a great tower up to heaven. But they were being puffed up with pride. They were building a great city, a great civilization, a great culture. And in their hearts they were saying this, I have no need of God. I have no need of God. We can... Care for ourselves. There is no end to our potential. And indeed, they were caught up with this same spirit even in those days. And what did God do but judge them and scatter them across the whole earth? The same thing has happened again and again throughout human history. Cities and cultures puffed up with pride and then judged by God. But what we are seeing here in Revelation 18 is that Uh, the city of Babylon in a universal sense will one day be judged totally and ultimately and finally. In fact, that is what we need to recognize. Fourthly, that Babylon is described as a city that is ripe for judgment. Look at verse five with me, where we are told that her sins are heaped as high as heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. Now, the phrase, God has remembered her iniquities, I think is meant to be heard in contrast to the covenant promises made by God to his people when he says to them, For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. So to be in Christ and to be partakers and members of that new covenant rem- means that God no longer remembers your sins, he does not count them against you. They are not heaped up before Him, but have been wiped away by the shed blood of Christ. But it is not so with the world. It is not so with Babylon and those who belong to Babylon. Indeed, their sins are heaped up as a great mountain before God. Can you just picture the massive garbage heap in your minds? God has forgotten not one of their sins, but in fact, their sins stand before God and... The city is ripe for judgment. For those who are in Christ, though our sins are like scarlet, God has made us white as snow. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Not so with those who are of this world. The world sins those not in Christ. The world's sin is piled up High, like a heap of garbage that is stinking and rotting because of their hard and impenitent hearts, they are storing up wrath for themselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed Romans two five in verse twenty one John sees a description of the judgment of Babylon. then a mighty mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. A little tangent here. Do you remember how Jeremiah commanded that this thing that he wrote that was to be read in Babylon, that it be tied to a stone and thrown into what? The Euphrates River, and what did it symbolize except the sure doom of ancient Babylon, literal ancient Babylon, that she would sink? that she would be covered with the waters of God's judgment and nothing could undo it. But notice here now, it is not the servant of Jeremiah who throws the stone into the water, but it is an angel who does it. It is a great millstone, and it is thrown not into the Euphrates, but into what? The sea, uh, symbolizing the universality of this judgment. It is not just one city or one culture that will be judged here, but all the great cities of the world. It will be Babylon universal That is judged at the end time. A millstone is a very large and heavy stone that is used to to grind grain. And so you can imagine what it would look like for one of those to be thrown into the sea. And how quickly it would sink to the bottom and vanish into the dark abyss. Have you ever been out on the ocean into deep water? You know, there's something unsettling about it, looking down into the deep, something overwhelming about it. But to imagine taking a very large millstone and throwing it in, that thing would disappear almost instantly, and it would sink to the bottom, never to return. That is what is being symbolized here, that this is how sure Babylon's destruction is. It will be like this. It will come quickly. It will be full. It will be final. It will be something that cannot be reversed in any way. This is how the judgment of Babylon will go. And we are also told that the sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeters will be heard in Babylon no more. No more craftsmen crafting their crafts will be found anymore in them. No more of the sound of the mill will be heard. Not even the voice of the bridegroom and the bride will be heard anymore. In other words, everything that makes culture great, everything that makes culture pleasant and enjoyable will be taken away in that day when Babylon is judged, and the new heavens and the new earth are ushered in. For your merchants, this is why the judgment is coming, for your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all the nations were deceived by your sorcery, and in her was found the blood of the prophets and of saints, and all who have been slain on earth. So this culture was ripe for judgment because she was so fueled by and so given to sinful living even to the point of drawing out the blood of prophets and of saints and why would babylon do that because the world hates those who have christ for those who have christ will take no part in babylon and so there is a war of cultures that does go on continually within the world those who are of christ who are living for the kingdom to come, the new heavens and the new earth, who belong to the heavenly Jerusalem, and those who are of Babylon, and those two cultures, light and darkness, conflict so strongly with one another that those who are of the darkness hate those who are of the light ultimately and do bring from time to time fierce persecution upon the church. I think this is quite a commentary on human culture. And I think we should take care, on the one hand, not to push this too far in assuming that all cultures are equally wicked. uh, Indeed, some cultures are more corrupt than others. Some are more fueled by an insatiable desire for pleasure than others. And some are therefore more ripe for judgment than others, the pile of their sins being heaped up higher than the piles of others. Uh, so we should not push it too far and, and act as if this is a commentary on all cultures in particular. Uh, the judgment pronounced against Babylon here is not meant to be applied with such exactness but communicates more generally that this is how the world works. The engine that drives the world is fueled by an insatiable desire for sinful pleasure. The sins of the world do not go unnoticed by God. The world, not all not in Christ is indeed storing up wrath for themselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So you get it, don't you? It's quite a commentary on the world in which we live. Fifthly, notice that Babylon is described as a city to flee from. And I think this is most important to notice. I think this is really the meaning of the text and the message for the believer. Verse 4 seems most important to me when we read, Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. That is the message to the church. That is the message to the Christian. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. This is the point. God wants His people to see the world for what it is, to recognize the seductiveness of the world, to see what is good in it, of course, and to see what is rightly to be enjoyed to the glory of God, but to recognize what is sinful too. We are to see how the world does tempt men and women to live not to the glory of God, but for their own sinful pleasure. And having seen the end of the matter, and having seen the world for what it is, we are to come out of it. Come out of her, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. Of course, this is not a call to leave any particular city or cities in general. Uh, This is not a call for people to leave the cities and to flee to the suburbs or to the rural places, Um, but this is a call to flee from worldliness wherever it is that you live. Be it in the big cities or in the rural places, flee from worldliness. Walk through Vanity Fair, but do not be seduced by Vanity Fair. Remain faithful to Christ as you live in this world. You are in the world, and that is right that you are in it, but do not be of it. Listen to what John says directly in 1 John 2.15. Remember John wrote 1 John, and he also wrote the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, truth is communicated via symbol. In 1 John, things are stated very directly. It's an epistle. 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, John says, along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. What John says directly here is communicated via symbol In Revelation chapter 18. So, what should we do in response to these things, brothers and sisters? Uh, It is simply this we are being exhorted here to come out of Babylon. We are being exhorted to flee from the harlot. Her power uh, may be concentrated in large and prosperous places, and it may be particularly seductive in capitals and in the great cities of the world. But her tentacles are far-reaching, aren't they? So that we, we feel her allure, even out here in Hemet. In a fairly rural place. There are places that are more rural than this, of course. But we feel her seductiveness, even here. Her tentacles are far-reaching. We do feel the allure, even ourselves. And we are to flee from her. And so I wonder, this is the question that must be asked. Has she grabbed a hold of you in any way? Does she have a hold upon Your heart, even today, Uh, your impulse, I think, might be to say, well, certainly not. Uh, But I would really urge you to, to not answer so quickly, but to slow down and to really contemplate these things. Has the harlot grabbed a hold of me? Has she latched on in any way? Have I fallen in love with this world in a way that is ungodly? Or do I love God and His kingdom supremely? And so I wonder, how is your heart How is your thought life? That is a question that needs to be asked. What is going on in your innermost being? What is it that you truly love? What is it that you think about and dwell upon? What do you fix your eyes upon, brothers and sisters? The answers to those questions will help us to answer, does the harlot have a hold on us? What do you truly treasure in this world? Is God and Christ your supreme treasure? Or do you treasure the things of this world more? What is ultimate for you? What are you living for? What could you not imagine living without? I think these kinds of questions really do help us to identify the idols that reside within our hearts. Our hearts are prone to idolatry and we must take that seriously. And we must inspect ourselves very carefully to be sure that we are found walking with Christ. And So brothers and sisters, my exhortation to you is to not be deceived. To think... The things of this world to be of ultimate worth and worthy of our worship. Indeed, only God is worthy of our worship and we must come to Him through faith in Christ. And once we come to faith in Him, we must worship and serve Him as He has ordained in His most holy word. We are to obey God's commandments in this world. We are to abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. We are to live for the furtherance of His kingdom in this world, understanding that there is also a kingdom of darkness that must be resisted. We are to live ultimately in this world, For the glory of God. That should be our greatest passion above all else. To bring glory to God in all that we do. So that whether you eat or drink or whatever you do. You do all things to the glory of God. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full into his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim. In the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, give us wisdom here. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ along uh, with uh, for myself that, Lord, we would truly contemplate Your Word. Lord, give us insight into our own heart and our own mind that we would be able to recognize what it is that we love most. I pray that we would... Indeed, live joyfully in this world, that we would partake of the good things of this world with thanksgiving and give glory to you through them, Lord, when we eat and when we drink and when we enjoy our relationships and when we even enjoy culture, that which is good in culture. Lord, may we do it truly and from the heart and to your glory. But, Father, give us the wisdom to see that which is evil. I pray that in all that we think and all that we say and all that we do, we would do it to your glory, honor, and praise. Help us, we pray. And it's in Christ's name that we say these things and all of God's people say, amen.